It has caused many countless pain. It has destroyed many of our homes and yet has become so common in our society that it just doesn't shock us anymore. What am I referring to? The breaking up of the commitment of marriage. Divorce rates continue to skyrocket and yet the rate among Christians is just as high as among non-Christians. Popular teaching says that the sole purpose of marriage is happiness and that a successful marriage is one that makes you happy. And if you believe that your marriage exists to make you happy, then you will believe all the info coming from secular counselors and from Dr. Phil and Oprah who essentially say, if you're not happy with your spouse, then go. Get away. Get divorced. If they're not bringing you fulfillment, then go find someone who will. But what does God think about marriage and divorce? I mean, this is the question that we need to be asking, right? Because it really doesn't matter what you think about the topic or about what I think about the topic, but what the maker and sustainer of the universe thinks about it. And so this morning, we're going straight to the source to see what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce. Now I understand that the topic of marriage and divorce elicits all kinds of feelings. Some of you are filled with regret and hearing this will be difficult. Please know that the God who ordained these words to be written is a God of grace and of forgiveness and of restoration. For others, some of you might be filled with anger and bitterness towards your spouse. Perhaps justly so. Maybe they've committed adultery against you or they've abandoned you or perhaps even have committed sexual or physical abuse towards you. Others perhaps are angry unjustly. Well, whatever your situation is, I encourage you to listen. And may the compassion of our great God be evident to you this morning. Because our God cares about you. He cares about you regardless of your situation or what you're going through. God cares about you. He loves you. He cares about your trial, your tribulation, your suffering. He cares. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're single. Maybe you're young and you think, well, this text doesn't really apply to me. Well, I don't know anyone who said in their singleness, someday I want to be married to the person of my dreams and then later divorce them. <laughs> None of us ever say that. None of us ever think it. So divorce applies to you if you're young, if you're single. And all of us have friends who are married couples, and we have a responsibility as Christians to pray for and to encourage them. Well, now one final word before we get started. It might be tempting during this sermon to say, wow, Dave, this is good teaching. This is really helpful. I really appreciate you. I'm so glad my spouse is here to hear the sermon today. <laughs> have you ever done that before? And you might be tempted to engage in something I like to call elbow church. Do you know what elbow church is? It's when you hear a point that you think, wow, this is fantastic for my spouse. I'm just going to give them a little nudge, a little, little elbow to make sure they're still awake, to make sure they know that I know they should be hearing this point right now. Well, from personal experience, let me urge you, don't do that. I give you a 100% personal guarantee that elbowing during church will not help your marriage. Not today, not any week. No, instead of listening for someone else, I want you to ask God to open up your own heart to this teaching this morning. And so let's pray now and ask God to reveal himself through his word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you that your word is all-powerful. We ask that you do laser surgery on our hearts this morning. Convict us of sin. Draw us to repentance. Oh, we ask for reconciliation in our midst. Even this morning, we pray that you would renovate our marriages according to your divine design. We pray this in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please open them to the Gospel of Mark as we continue our study in the life and times of Jesus. It's the second book of the New Testament, and we'll be in chapter 10. Chapter 10, and we'll be moving through verses 1 through 16. I'll read the passage in its entirety, beginning in verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Well, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Well, Jesus is in Judea, and the Pharisees are at it again. These hypocrites were outraged by the ministry of Jesus. They think he's a fraud and are worried about an uprising, and so they're always looking to trap Jesus. And the Pharisees, they come to him thinking, okay, Okay, we got Jesus now. Let's press him on divorce. Maybe we can trap him. They weren't sincerely wondering what Jesus' teaching on divorce was. Perhaps they wanted to expose him as a strict teacher. See, in Jesus' day, there was a couple schools of rabbinic thought about divorce. There was the more conservative school, which taught that you could only be divorced on grounds of sexual adultery. Well, the more liberal school, the more liberal rabbinic thought said, you could get divorced for anything. Divorce is up for grabs. If your wife ruins supper and she burns the toast, you can stand up and say, well, that's it. That's the last straw. You're divorced. And so perhaps they're coming to Jesus here to get him to state his strict view, which they knew, in order to alienate himself from this whole faction of rabbinic thought and leadership. Or maybe they want to get him in trouble with Herod, who had already killed John the Baptist for objecting to his divorce. Well, whatever the reason, the Pharisees are setting up a trap. So Jesus sees this, and he takes this as an opportunity in our passage to let them know that he's not a big fan of divorce, and to let us know some good, solid principles on marriage and divorce that should guide us. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to go through seven different insights from this passage regarding marriage and divorce. So we'll go through each of those seven one by one, and then I'll finish with three points of application for us. So let's first begin with these seven insights. They should come up on the screen uh, for you to write down as well. The first insight is that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Nowhere in our passage or any passage does it say that. No, God is clear in the book of Malachi in chapter 2 that God hates divorce. It's clear, but we need to be careful not to make this the unforgivable sin on par with blasphemy. For some in the church, it's easier to forgive a murderer or a thief who has repented than a divorced person. Some say, if you're divorced, get out of here. God can no longer use you. 
Now, friends, I want to tell you that that is wretched thinking, that that is completely false. Now, if you're here this morning and you've been divorced, you don't have a big D on your forehead that lights up every time we see you. No, I don't look at you and say, divorce No, friends, if you're a Christian, every time I see you, I see you as one whom Christ has died for. When I see you, I see redeemed, redeemed by the same blood of the lamb that was shed to forgive me of my sins. I see you as one who has been born again, as one who is loved by God. I see you as a brother or a sister in Christ, period. Now, there are some terrible consequences to divorce. And perhaps you have been divorced for unbiblical reasons. But even that sin has been paid for on the cross if you follow Jesus. Now, if you've gone through this, if you're here today and you've gone through divorce, I want to tell you that we love you. I'm going to tell you that we care about you and that we grieve with you and for you in your pain. can't even imagine the devastation that it's been or that it is right now. No, we want to love you. We want to stand by you. We want to pray for you. And the reason we do this is because we know that divorce elicits so much pain. We know that it elicits so much heartache because of its severity as it was never part of God's plan. That's the second point or insight here in this passage is that divorce was never part of God's plan. No, the starting point in Jewish discussions on divorce was Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4, which is what Jesus is referring to in our passage when he points the Pharisees back to Moses. Jesus tells us in this passage that this exception was not by God's divine design. No, it was to reduce the fallout from man's heart. This legislation on divorce certificates that Moses allowed protected wives from brutal abandonment. It also helped guard against anything that might look like wife swapping. In Jesus' day, it was not uncommon for a man to get bored or tired with his wife, and so he would divorce her and then move on to another woman. And then when he got bored of her or tired of her, he might decide, might decide, well, my original wife wasn't so bad. Let me go back to her. No, this would happen. It would look like wife swapping. And so these certificates kept women from being treated like property. It safeguarded their rights. And yet the Pharisees had celebrated this permissive divorce. They had said, no, look what it says in the law of Moses. Divorce is okay. Divorce is celebrated. If you want to get divorced, just go get divorced. Jesus is saying, no, Deuteronomy 24 didn't encourage divorce. It, wasn't, it was given as a protection for the hurting party, limiting damage done because of the wickedness of he, the human heart. Breaking up a marriage was never God's idea. It was never God's design. Because point three... The third insight is that marriage involves the most sacred of unions and mirrors the gospel. Marriage mirrors the gospel. I think verse 8 is one of the most beautiful verses in our Bible where it says, And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one I mean, do you see what that means, husbands and wives? If you are married, you are no longer two, but one flesh. You can't consider your spouse merely your roommate. You can't view your life as if it's a me life. No, there's a sacred union between husband and wife, and it takes priority over all human relationships. Over your relationship with your parents, over your relationship with your siblings or your kids because you are only one flesh with your spouse. So in marriage, we can't be thinking in individual, individual, I can't even talk today, individualistic ways. 
can't be thinking in those ways. We can't be thinking in terms of me. We need to be thinking in terms of we. Your thoughts, desires, the way you use your money, the way you talk with each other, the way you make decisions should be an expression of we, not me. And when we are living as we, as one flesh, this sacred union marvelously demonstrates the gospel to the world. Think, to, think back to Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul writes, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul saying your marriage is meant to reflect the gospel. Your marriage is meant to mirror Christ and the church. So that's why we as humans can't legitimately break it. It's because the ultimate meaning of marriage is the representation of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and the church. So that's why adultery is so awful. If marriage is supposed to communicate the gospel, then adultery betrays the truth about Jesus. Because Jesus never, ever, ever, ever does this to his bride, the church. Jesus never forsakes her. He never abandons her. He never abuses her. He always loves her. He always takes her back when she wanders. He's always patient with her. He always cares for her, provides for her, protects her, and delights in her. He is always faithful. God has always had marriage on his mind. From before time began, God had plans for his church. He was preparing a bride for his son. And it would take the crucifixion and the resurrection of the groom to bring this marriage to pass. I mean, think of it. Think of the privilege that God has given us as husbands and wives. God has created the most intimate human relationship, marriage, to speak of the intimacy of Christ's relationship with the church. It's glorious. Your marriage is meant to communicate the gospel to God, to the angels, to humans, and even to your children. Have you thought about how your marriage teaches your kids? Our kids see everything, don't they? They see all of our fights. They absorb our attitudes. They know who or really sits on the throne of our lives. They watch how we handle resentment or when we talk bad about our spouse. And they know when we sit at church and then ignore the sermon as soon as we go home on Friday. Now, do your kids look at your marriage and say, I want a marriage like that? Do they look at your marriage and say, I want the God who created that marriage? Our kids should see the beauty of the gospel and the way their parents love each other. But your marriage should mirror the gospel. That's the third insight here. The fourth insight here is that marriage is God's creation. It's God's creation. Commitment to marriage is important because it was God's idea. God did it. God created it. I mean, did you notice in the text, back in verse 6, Jesus goes back to creation and says, it was God's idea to create male and female. He looked down and he saw that Adam was alone. And there's no proof that Adam was pacing back and forth in the garden saying, I'm alone, I'm alone, I'm alone. If I could just have a woman here to help me pick fruit and play squash all day, then I'd be okay. No, the text never says that. The text says, God looked down upon Adam and said, it's not good for him to be alone. God created male and female. It was God's idea. It was God's creation. So in verse 9 in our passage, it says, What God has joined together, let not man separate. No, God has joined you to your spouse. You didn't do it. 
It was his work. Do you see the implications of that? You are married to whom you are supposed to be married to. I mean, think back at your life and how God orchestrated you and your spouse to meet. I like to do this for Gloria and I. I look back at almost 10 years ago, how we met, and even beyond that at our birth, how we were born 6,000 kilometers away. And growing up, we moved about 15 times each, only to finally meet in the middle at a church class after university. She even thought my name was Scott for six months and that I was 40 years old. (laughs) But even through that stumbling block, God in his sovereignty brought us together in marriage. God orchestrated it. No, our marriages are an expression of the glory of his sovereignty. Paul says in Acts 17, God determines the exact places we will live and the length of our days. All that comes to pass is from God. And so when you wake up in the morning and you turn to see your spouse, you can say with confidence that my marriage was God's idea. That my marriage was God's creation. That it is the work of God. That God knew exactly what he was doing. He knew the rather crazy and difficult mix of Dave and Gloria. He knew my character flaws. He knew that I was loud and obnoxious and loud. And he knew that my wife Gloria was sweet and patient and kind. Now, if you're married, God is sovereign even in spite of and over your mistakes. You are married to the exact person you are supposed to be married to. Your marriage was God's idea. It was his creation. So even though two humans decide to get married and a pastor presides over the ceremony, all of these are secondary to the main actor in your marriage, God himself. God has joined you together. That's why God takes divorce so seriously and why divorce is a mockery of the gospel. Well, this naturally brings up the next question. Is it ever okay to get divorced? Is there ever a time when this most sacred union could be broken? That leads me to my fifth insight, fifth comment here, is that divorce is permissible but not required in two circumstances, adultery and abandonment by an unbeliever. Divorce is never a good thing, but it is permitted on two grounds. First, it's permitted but not required on the grounds of adultery. There's an exception clause in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, in a description of the same passage here in Mark 10. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman, commits adultery. Sexual sin breaks the marriage covenant because sex is the oath signing of the covenant. In such cases, the covenant is broken and divorce is allowed. Now, Mark and Luke don't mention the exception clause in their accounts, though, as Mark Dever has said, it was likely left out because it was already a given. No one in Judaism disagreed that divorce was acceptable on the grounds of sexual immorality. And Jesus had said it already just a few chapters before in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus says, the words from his mouth, anyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual sin makes her commit adultery. Now the Jews all knew this and Jesus had already said it. But friends, adultery doesn't have to end the marriage. While allowed, divorce is never commanded by God. No, the goal is always repentance and reconciliation. Remember remember back to the Old Testament, to the story of Hosea. You might remember that prophet. He was told by God to go marry, and so he married a woman named Gomer. They were to have children. They had children and grew this wonderful family. And yet Gomer just takes off one day. She takes off and becomes a prostitute. 
She goes to the marketplace and sells her body to other men. And yet God goes up to Hosea and says, Hosea, go find her. Go to the marketplace. Gather your life savings. Gather your funds and go buy her back. Go redeem her. So Hosea obeys God. He goes to the marketplace where she's being sold. And he redeems her by treating her like his virgin bride. In this story, God is telling Israel, this is my picture of my love for you. Divorce, and yet one day here in the future, you have been bought back. Now, fellow Christian, this is the gospel. That you had rejected God and you had followed the seduction of this world. You had sinned against the Holy God, and yet God didn't turn from you. God didn't leave you in your sin. But like Hosea purchasing Gomer, God purchased you through the blood of Jesus. Christ's death on the cross provided a way for you to be restored to God. Now friends, regardless of what you're going through this morning, this is the greatest news in the world. Whatever your pain, whatever your suffering, this is the greatest word, it's the greatest news to you today. And so if you're here and your spouse has committed adultery, I urge you, don't run. There is a place for restoration and for forgiveness if there is genuine repentance and remorse. Though extremely difficult, though incredibly difficult and hard. You now have a prime place to display the glory of Christ by forgiving the one who has offended you. If you're here today and you don't know the forgiveness of Jesus then it will be impossible for you to forgive properly. If you don't know Christ, it'll be impossible for you to have a marriage according to God's design. Now you need to receive Christ as one who is utterly helpless and has nothing to offer. That's why I think verses 13 through 16 in our passage about receiving the kingdom like a child is right next to this story. Because in a sense, this entire chapter, this entire passage is is about being a disciple of Christ. In our case, it's, it's about being a disciple of Christ in marriage. Next week, we'll see according to money. And then the next week, according to our ambition. Now, we have all failed in marriage to hold on to God's ordained purpose. And we have no ability to obey the law fully. We must all come to him as a child in humble recognition that we are completely and utterly independent in an independence of him. Now I encourage you, the only way to a truly fulfilling marriage is if you embrace the forgiveness found in Jesus. The Bible says that if you would repent of your sin, and if you would trust in Jesus, you could have this forgiveness. You can have a transformed life. Now I urge you to do that today. The best thing that you can do for your marriage is to follow Jesus. It's the greatest thing that you can do today. It's to follow Jesus. Well, divorce is permitted, but not commanded for adultery. Well, we also see that divorce is permitted on the grounds of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. We see this in 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 12 through 16. Let's look at these verses for a minute. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, Paul is saying here, if your spouse is a non-believer and they leave, let them leave. You 
are no longer bound to them. But, do you see what the scripture also says? It says you never, ever, ever divorce your spouse because they're not a believer. No, you stay with them, you love them, you model the gospel for them, and you pray for them. Because God, in his infinite grace and mercy, may use you as the instrument of salvation in their lives. This is remarkable to consider, and it's been remarkable to see at our church. Over the last several months, we've seen several non-Christian spouses who are married to a Christian come to saving faith in Christ. And so we rejoice, and we thank God that in part that was because of a faithful, believing spouse who has stood by their spouse's side and loved them and modeled Christ for them. Well, these two grounds for divorce is what the traditional Protestant position has been as written down in the Westminster Confession and held by most evangelicals. That in the case of adultery or abandonment by a non-believer, the marriage covenant can be severed. Now, are there other grounds for divorce? Well, the Bible doesn't mention any other But what about continual physical or sexual abuse of a spouse or children? I can envision in extreme circumstances like that that the elders may conclude that this offending man or woman has not completely disappeared, but that his or her life is tantamount to desertion and that it is no longer safe to be in that situation. And in those cases, divorce may be allowed. But I want to be careful not to add things to what the Bible says. We must proceed very cautiously in this way. That's why each case needs to be dealt with individually and through much prayer. Now, if you're here today and you're the offending party, I'm going to say a couple words to you. If you're here this morning and you're the offending party, meaning perhaps you're sitting this morning right next to your spouse and yet you're committing adultery behind the scenes. Or perhaps you're engaged in physical or sexual abuse towards your spouse, even right now, even this week. Oh, I urge you right now, stop. I don't know if I could say it strong enough. If this is you today, stop what you're doing. You have offended God. You have sinned against the holy God. You have sinned against your spouse. You have sinned against your kids. You have sinned against the church. You have mocked the gospel. And I beg you, I urge you to stop. I urge you right in your seat this morning to repent of your sin, to ask God for forgiveness, and to run to the cross. Friend, we want to help you. We love you too. We We want to take care of you. We want to help you. We want to see you restored. But I urge you, stop, ask for help, and do this today. Don't let another day go by. Well, what if you've been divorced? The next logical question that comes then is, what about remarriage? That's my next point, point six here. Only in situations where the divorce was permissible, remarriage is permissible. Romans 7.3 says the marriage is clearly allowed after a spouse dies, but what about after a biblically sanctioned divorce? Well, this is a debated question that's not as clear as the biblical grounds for divorce. Let me give you a few reasons why I think remarriage is possible First, because in Matthew 5 and 19, Jesus says that the one who puts away his wife except for fornication and marries another is expressly condemned as an adulterer. It appears then that the option is open, that there is a way for remarriage that is not adulterous. Secondly, John Murray has said that if there is a way in divorce to dissolve the marriage bond then the question of remarriage is open because the person is no longer married. The broken bond no longer leaves you bonded and therefore assumes the right to be remarried. 
1 Corinthians 7.15 uses that language that you are no longer bonded. You are no longer enslaved to that person. Which seems to imply that the spouse then has freedom to remarry. Legitimate divorce then dissolves this bond, whereas illegitimate divorce does not and leads to adultery. Well, thirdly, in the first century, divorce was synonymous with the right to remarry. John MacArthur points out that all scholars agree that remarriage was an option for first century Jews after a valid divorce. That the whole point of obtaining a divorce was to be freed up to remarry. MacArthur adds that if Jesus wanted to teach that remarriage after every divorce was unacceptable, then he would have made this new teaching much more clear. Well, with all that said, there is sharp disagreement on this. The argument that I put forward is held to by folks like Don Carson, John MacArthur, John Stott, John Murray, and others. And though most of his elders disagree with him, John Piper argues just the opposite of what I've said. And he says that remarriage is never an option after divorce. It's likely that in our church there's disagreement among leaders and among members on this topic. And so we must be careful to extend grace and patience when navigating these difficult waters. But I would add this, that just because a divorced person may be free to remarry doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good idea that they do so. There's a lot of other considerations, but the general principle is that after a legitimate divorce, there is freedom to remarry. However, when divorce isn't permissible, the scripture is crystal clear that any subsequent marriage to someone other than your spouse results in adultery. And so if you're here and you're divorced and shouldn't be and your former spouse isn't remarried, pray that God could do a miracle and reconcile the two of you. What a trophy to God's grace it would be if he would bring you two back together. But if that doesn't happen, don't get remarried, stay single, accept what God has given you. Well, in the seventh and final insight, the seventh and final point is that improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay put, repent of their sin, and make amends if necessary. Now, this is where things get a little bit more difficult. If you were illegitimately divorced and have remarried, should you leave that current marriage? I don't think so. The principle as Kevin DeYoung points out, is repeated three times in 1 Corinthians 7. It's over and over again that the theme of the, of the chapter is to remain as you are. God does not want you to add to the sin of a remarriage the sin of another divorce. Now clearly there have been consequences to your sin, but by God's grace in your repentance, you have been forgiven. So if this is you, run to the cross. Admit your guilt and find comfort in his love. But I'd also urge you to do whatever it takes to make things right with your ex-spouse, with your kids, with your parents, with your former parents-in-law. It'd be good for you to ask forgiveness of those you've hurt by breaking your vows. It'd be good for you to see reconciliation with those that you've hurt. Well, how about for those of us who are properly married? How do we heed these strong words about marriage and divorce? Well, that's where I want to head in these final few moments. I want to bring up three areas of application that can help us in preventing divorce. Three areas that can help us here. The first point, the first area, protection of marriage as God designed it and defense against unbiblical divorce is rooted in the worship of God. If your marriage is struggling and you're here today, the most fundamental question you need to ask yourself is, am I worshiping God? Am I walking with the Lord? If you're pursuing divorce, ask yourself, am I pursuing Christ? The times I've been most unhappy with my wife has never ultimately been about her. When I've been most unsatisfied with my wife, the reality is I've been most unsatisfied with God. 
It's always been a heart issue for me, and it's a heart issue for you. Friends, if your marriage is in danger, make sure you are worshiping God. Simply put, divorce often happens when there is a failure to worship the King of Kings. Because this is what happens in marriage. You elevate your spouse to the place of Messiah in your life. You try to find all your happiness and significance and joy from them. And so when they fail to bring you joy, when they fail to bring you happiness, you say, well, forget about them. I'm going to find someone who will bring me happiness. And you get up and you leave and you try to find it somewhere else. But see, friends, all people will ultimately fail you. Every single one of us will fail you. All of us are sinners and none of us can be your Messiah. When you do that for another person, when you place your spouse on the throne of your life as the Messiah of your life, you're asking them to be something that they were never meant to be. You're asking them to provide for your greatest needs and fulfillment that they were never meant to provide. Now friends, if your marriage is struggling, make sure you are worshiping God. It's the most fundamental, most foundational thing we're going to talk about today. So if there's one thing for you to remember if your marriage is struggling, is make sure you are worshiping God. Well, that's the first thing. The second thing is remember your commitment to God and to your spouse. Your feelings, they come and go. Perhaps you had all kinds of warm emotions and feelings when you first got married. Or perhaps some of you didn't, didn't have a romantic beginning at all and you got married for other reasons. Well, either way, your marriage can't be fueled by feelings. It can only be sustained when you elevate your covenant to God and each other over and above your feelings and emotions. Now, you made a covenant to God and your spouse Think about that this morning. Just sit back and think, you made a covenant to God. You made a promise to God. You made a vow to God and to your spouse that you would be committed to the very end. I recently heard Don Carson share a story about an old man who had been married for 65 years and was being interviewed about his marriage. The interviewer said, 65 years. That's a long time. 65 years. And you have never, ever considered divorce? The old man kind of bristled and said, divorce? 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 Never. Now murder, yes. (laughs) But divorce, never. Murder, all the time. Divorce, not a chance. Now, of course, you can make that sound ridiculous, and I don't think he was entirely serious, although I don't know. Maybe he was. (laughs) But he was making a point that there will be times in your marriage when things are tough. There will be changes in your life, your family, your health will change. At times, only a promise can hold you together. I can speak about this from my own personal experience. Gloria and I have had our share of difficult times over the years. The past five or six years have been incredibly tough for us with my physical handicap and disability, with the nerve condition in my arms. And sure, the smiles come by God's grace, but it has been very, very difficult. And several years ago, after my first surgeries, at the height of my pain, I was a difficult man to be around. I didn't pursue Gloria. Eliza had just been born. I didn't pursue Eliza. I was depressed. I was angry. I was sad. I was anxious. It was, it was all about me. And yet throughout, that, throughout all of that, Gloria stood by my side. She was patient with me when I didn't deserve it. She prayed for me. She loved me. And in her covenant-keeping commitment, she modeled Christ for me. I didn't deserve her love and affection, and yet she gave it to me time and time again. 
And in those moments, I wasn't bringing her any joy. I wasn't bringing her any happiness. And in those moments, the world was telling her, go, run, go away. Find someone who will bring you happiness. Find someone who will bring you joy. Find someone who will serve your needs. But she stayed with me. She poured out her love for me. She modeled the gospel to me. Because friends, that's the gospel. Because the reality is, your spouse doesn't deserve your Christ-like love. But we give it because he first loved us. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And while we were yet sinners, he gave his life as a ransom for many. Now, love isn't about feeling warm fuzzies inside all the time, although they may come. It's about being committed to God and your spouse. And it's in this greenhouse of commitment that the truth of the gospel in your relationship will shine bright to the world. Now, friends, how are you doing with this this morning? How are you doing with your commitment to your spouse? Are you mirroring the gospel in your commitment to them? Are you modeling commitment by being nice to your spouse? Are you modeling it by pursuing each other intimately? Are you verbally affirming of your commitment to your spouse? Or do you throw around the divorce word in the heat of the moment in an argument as a use of manipulation towards your spouse? Now take your covenant as seriously as God does. God keeps his covenant with us. And so we are to keep this covenant with God and with our spouse. Well, finally, my third and last point of application this morning is protect yourself against temptation to break your commitment. Protect yourself. Don't share secrets or marriage struggles with someone of the opposite sex. Don't flirt or spend extended time with someone who's not your spouse. Watch your eyes from wandering don't look at pornography. Don't ever, ever, ever look at it. Because when you look at explicit images of someone who's not your spouse, what you're doing, it's like a grenade is exploding on your heart, breaking down your affection for both God and your spouse. You know, all these things will weaken your commitment to your marriage. Instead, invest into your marriage. Spend time together. Set up regular date nights. Even if you don't like being together right now, just do it as a discipline at first. Take walks together. Take a weekend away from the kids. Pray together. Read together. Talk about Jesus together. And friend, if you really want to guard against divorce, be transparent with other Christians. Be open with another couple one of the reasons we made it through our difficult period in our marriage was because we had another couple who prayed for us and who confronted us. When they sat us down in that moment and said, Dave, where you're going is not good. The direction you're going is not acceptable. Things need to change. And it was the beginning of several hard conversations with these friends. But I'm so thankful that these friends were willing to be awkward with us. I'm so thankful that they loved us enough to ask us and to confront us about these things. Friends, are you living out your marriage in the context of community? Are you living it out in the context of the local church? Put to death your proud and dangerous independence. Walk in the light. Get your problems out in the open. Because remember, the cross has already criticized us far more than any one of us can. Because when I'm up here and I'm looking down upon you, I know that you are a sinner. I know that your sin is so wretched that Jesus had to go to the cross to die for it. And you can think the same about me as I stand up here and preach, that I'm such a wretched sinner that Jesus walked to the cross and bled for me. No, friend, we all have problems. We all have issues. None of our marriages are perfect. I urge you to get your struggles, to get your problems out into the open. We need each other. 
Sanctification is a community project. Your marriage is a community project. And so if you're contemplating divorce this morning, please talk to someone. Talk to another member. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to me. Get help now. Shoot a flare to the sky saying, help. Your pride is not worth defaming the gospel imagery of marriage. Your pride is not worth destroying your life. No, don't give up. Even if you have biblical grounds for divorce, consider what glory it might be to God to patiently work towards reconciliation. And if you don't have biblical grounds, consider what offense it'll be to God to break the promises you made in His name. No, friends, stay married. And if you're single, be in preparation for marriage. I hope this morning is a sobering reminder to you about the seriousness of marriage. This most sacred union, that marriage is not something that we take lightly. So pray for your spouse. Pray for your future spouse and remain pure and patient until that day God brings you the one you are to marry. And as a church, as Redeemer Church of Dubai, here on the center of the Arabian Peninsula in this dark, dark land, my prayer for us is that our marriages would exalt Christ. That they'd point our friends, our neighbors, and one another to the gospel. That our relationships between husbands and wives would mirror the gospel, would mirror Christ's love for the church. And would we, as a church, be used by God to see radical transformation in this land? And would we live with thankfulness for God's beautiful divine design in marriage? Oh, let us go to this great God in prayer now, asking for his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your clear instruction. May we apply it to our lives. Oh, we beg you that the marriages of this church would reflect Jesus. That they would mirror the gospel to the world. Father, we ask for healing for those marriages that are hurting. We ask for reconciliation for those who have dealt with divorce for those who are in pain even today. Oh, Father, we ask for your mercy and grace. Comfort those hurting in our midst by your sustaining grace. Father, use us to display to the world your great gospel. Walk with us. Help us, Father. Give us comfort and confidence in our trials that we would remember this great gospel that Jesus has saved us. Help us to persevere even in pain. May we delight in you all the days of our lives. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.